This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And E. Jean Carroll may sue Donald Trump for a third time. That would be Carol Three. We have such a great show today. Senator Debbie Stabenow talks to us about the complexities of Michigan politics and the presidential primary. Then we'll talk to Congressman Colin Allred about his run against Senator Lion Ted Cruz in the great state of Texas on this third anniversary of the senator's trip to Cancun, Mexico. But first, we have the Washington Post columnist, Catherine Rampal. Welcome to Fast Politics, Catherine Rampal. Thanks for having me. So I always want to have you on the podcast because I think you're really smart and a good writer, and also because you went to college with my brother. <laughs> That's which, true. <laughs> this is true. So basically, the thing that I always think about when people are, and really the mainstream media, and especially the right-wing media, is demonizing migrants, immigrants, people coming to this country for the hopes of a better life, is that this is also a very financially unsound way to look at the world. And so you wrote just a really concise piece about that last week. Just talk us through exactly why immigration is good for the economy. Sure. The reason I wrote this, just to back up for a second, is that I feel like both parties have accepted the premise that the fact that the United States is able to draw immigrants around the world is a curse. It is a bad thing. It is a problem to be solved. And I just think that premise is wrong, that immigration is a blessing. The fact that, that we are able to, to pull in and attract talent from around the world 
is just such a gift. And this is one of the few places where both parties are the same framing is actually correct because both parties have decided that immigration is somehow not the boon that it really is. So I'm really glad that you said that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the narrative is pushed mostly by Republicans, but I think Democrats have essentially conceded the point. So that's sort of where I came from with this piece. And to be clear, like there are lots of moral humanitarian reasons as well to accept people fleeing persecution and dangerous circumstances and to show our, you know, our light is the city on the hill or whatever, providing refuge to to people around the world. But just from a like self-interested financial perspective, it is also a really good thing. So if you look at, for example, the Congressional Budget Office's recent new forecasts for the budget and for the economy. They put these out uh, periodically. They were revised upward. The, the numbers for like how big the economy is and will grow, as well as other kinds of metrics along those lines have been redrafted, essentially revised to be much more favorable. And a large part of the reason why is that we've had this surprise increase in immigration, which has led to more people in the labor force At the same time that, you know, native born Americans, boomers, among others, are increasingly retiring, the the native born population in the United States is aging. So fewer people as a share of the populace are in the labor force. Meanwhile, immigrants who are coming here are disproportionately working age. They're very likely to work. And so that alone is a major engine for the economy. On top of that, you also have the fact that Foreign-born people in the United States are much more likely to start businesses. You know, they have higher entrepreneurship rates. If you were talking about skilled immigration, so people who are here on H-1Bs, that's a skilled immigrant visa category. You know, they're very highly productive. They start companies at, at, at high rates. They are responsible for issuing a lot of patents. So they generate a lot of innovation, R&D in the United States. And this is not just me saying this. There's like tons of research <laughs> that, that goes into all of this. So there are a number of ways in which this infusion of new talent and new energy in the United States, both historically and at the present time, has been responsible for really strong economic growth and has put us at a much more advantageous position relative to lots of other developed countries that are not as dynamic in terms of people coming in. Like if you look at countries like Japan, which have historically made it much more difficult to immigrate. Yeah, that's what I, I was just about to say, Japan. And But I wondered if you could even see this example really the most starkly when it comes to Brexit. Yes. Brexit has handicapped the UK economy in all sorts of different ways, not only about the flow of immigrants, but certainly the fact that they've made it much more difficult for talent to come in for for labor, for talent to come into the UK from around Europe has really harmed the British economy, not only like high tech jobs, you know, people, high tech jobs, finance jobs, things like that, people who might have been more seamlessly moving from Germany and France and, and other parts of the EU to the UK, but even lower skilled jobs, people with less formal education. The canonical example is the Polish plumber, not only <laughs> that particular example, but people who worked in hospitality. All of that was really critical to keeping a lot of industries in the UK going and has been challenging for the British economy. 
And the other thing that I should mention in all of this is actually since I wrote this piece that we're talking about, which, you know, heavily talks about those CBO numbers, there was also a report that came out of the Department of Health and Human Services looking at the refugee and asylee population, which people usually hold up as well. You know, like maybe it's true that those Indian born engineers who are here on H-1B visas like contribute a lot because they're you know, quote unquote, high skilled. But all these people flooding over the border were coming in, you know, penniless as refugees. Clearly, they're not contributing anything. And actually, that is not true. <laughs> in fact, even for that population over a longer term horizon, I think that the HHS report, I forget exactly, I think it was like 10 or 15 years, found that including state and, and local and, and federal levels, these people also are net fiscal contributors, meaning that they pay more in taxes. And they pay into Social Security. They pay into Social Security. So if we're, we're you know, they're obviously I'm, I'm sort of talking about a whole bunch of different populations of immigrants here. But they're all unified by the fact that they are coming to this country, either legally or illegally, and that they are workers, which is the fundamental thing that an enormous country with an aging population desperately needs. Right. And on the point about paying taxes, ironically, on some metrics, you could imagine that those who are here unlawfully are the biggest net boon fiscally, you know, to budgets because they are paying into the tax system, but they are not eligible for virtually any social safety net benefits by virtue of the fact that they are are not here legally. There are some exceptions to that, like in California, if you're an undocumented woman and you are pregnant, you can get access to certain kinds of prenatal care. But other than that, these are people who cannot get food stamps, cannot get Social Security, cannot get Obamacare tax credits, things like that. So they're paying in but not taking out, which is actually the opposite of the lie that all Republicans say, or at least a lot of Republicans shop this lie that people are coming to this country and taking your stuff. But in fact, they are coming to this country paying for your Social Security and not getting anything. Yes, at least those who are here off the books. That is certainly the case. It's kind of ironic because the United States has this serious long-term challenge with the funding of entitlement programs, you know, sort of safety net programs for the elderly. And one of the reasons why we haven't hit the crisis point yet is that we have <laughs> brought in so many working age immigrants who are paying into the system and keeping it solvent. And meanwhile, the population who in general is most uh, averse to that influx of people tends to be older, more conservative people. I mean, I, I don't want to generalize. But they do tend to be benefiting from these immigrants. Correct. It's such a really important point. And I would love you to just talk about what happens to an aging economy. Like, for example, I think about Italy. I think about countries where, you know, the people in the economy get older and older and there aren't workers coming in to replace them. I mean, what happens? This is J Japan, too. Like, what happens to that economy when you can't get people to work? Yeah. And look, I'm not suggesting that we should force older people to work up until their deathbed. I am. No, I'm just <laughs> no, no, no one's suggesting that. But the economy can only survive if there are people there to do the jobs. Right. It is very challenging for a number of reasons. One is, of course, if a country has promised 
various kinds of safety net benefits, social insurance benefits to people in their older age. It's not like I pay into Social Security and then there is a there's like a, a discrete account that has my money in it and it stays like in a private account. I mean, George W. Bush tried to propose things like this, but that's not how it actually works. And that it's there for me when I retire. It's like a Ponzi scheme, essentially. Right, it's right, like I pay right. in the money that I am paying in is funding the benefits of the people who are retired now. It's not funding my benefits directly, right? Money is fungible, so it's like doesn't really matter. But you have lots of countries where there are these very large promised benefits for the elderly that must be paid for. And if nobody is paying into the system, that's challenge number one. Challenge number two, of course, is that you need people working not just for the benefit of the tax revenue to go to fund those safety net benefits, but also because you need people to run the restaurants and the other companies and keep the infrastructure going and invent new technologies and all of the other parts of the economy that don't have to do with just sustaining the living standards of elderly people. It's a serious challenge. You've seen major productivity slowdowns as a result of that. You have what economists and demographers often referred to as like the old age ratio, you know, an increasingly large number of retirees per working person in many of these countries. And it is a real challenge. And again, part of the reason why the United States has not had such a tough situation. I mean, there are a lot of things that set the U.S. economy apart. One is that we have had higher fertility rates than most of these other countries, which means that our demographic skew is not quite as bad. But we are below replacement rate right now, meaning that we are not having enough kids basically to replace the existing population. And so our fertility rate alone is not going to prevent this fiscal time bomb from going off. Even with Elon Musk having all those children? You know, he's doing his part. <laughs> also, I think we should both agree that people should not have children just for the economy. I mean, maybe they should. I <laughs> Nor <laughs> Anyway, as someone who has three children, you know, it is quite expensive. And it is like the leading indicator of bankruptcy, right, is having children. But anyway, but the point is, I mean, you need people to grow your economy. So one of the things we had Hannah Dreyer on this podcast, and she's incredible, and what she had this unbelievable reporting about child labor. And it was a couple months ago, so no one remembers because we're the United States of Amnesia. But around that time, there were also stories about red state state governors like Sarah Huckabee Sanders signing, signing bills that would make it less expensive, make the fines less expensive and make child labor legaler. I mean, clearly, this means that children are working in a lot of these jobs. It's just so bizarre to me. Like, we have... This obvious solution to a problem, which is we have a lot of job openings going begging. A tight, tight labor market. Right, exactly. In a lot of industries where Americans don't want to work, they're low paid. And rather than saying, huh, we have this pool of people who really want to come here and take those and, and, you know, work in those jobs and support themselves, again, because they cannot qualify for public benefits, despite misconceptions, rather than saying, yeah, let's plug those people who want the jobs into the jobs. We're like, you know what? Let's like have some 13 year olds go and work in that, you know, meat processing plant or whatever. Instead, it's just it's so bizarre to me. It's like this is not that hard of a puzzle to fit together. And yet we're like searching for 
all sorts of other ways to deal with labor shortages. And I want to be clear, poorly managed immigration flows definitely cause stresses to the economy, particularly to local economies. Like if you look at, you know, you and I live in New York. If you look at the number of migrants who are coming to New York, largely being bussed by the governor of Texas without any coordination with the feds or with the state of New York or with the, you know, with with city officials in New York. Yeah, that causes lots of stress on the local economy. And we have a broken immigration system that doesn't adequately or sufficiently quickly process people who are coming here. All sorts of problems with that. And that causes severe stress, you know, on the housing system in New York, among other places. None of that is good. And and I'm not trying to suggest that there is no problem here, but there are much more creative ways to deal or to take advantage of the fact that lots of people are trying to come here rather than throwing up our hands and saying, I guess we can't, I guess we just need to like try to get these people out. There are so many more compassionate humanitarian ways to handle the the demand of people to come here and to and to match them up with very real economic needs that we have. And by the way, on your point about the the child labor laws, you know, one of my favorite or least favorite, I guess, comments that has been made about this, you know, border crisis issue is that um, Mike Collins, who's a representative, Republican representative from Georgia, tweeted the other day, import the third world and become the third world. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, if anybody's trying to turn the United States into the third world, which I think is a term we don't really use anymore, the developing country, it is not immigrants. It is people like Collins himself, you know, by relaxing child labor laws, (laughs) not to mention supporting the return of a would-be dictator and and gutting the safety net and and gutting clean water standards and all that. Like the reasons why they're fleeing those developing countries with their poor institutions and their poor quality of life. The reason why they are coming here is that we do have various kinds of institutions that are much better than those in their home countries that people like Mike Collins are now trying to degrade. I mean, these people, are trying to elect an autocrat. So, yes. they, you know, if we're going to talk about countries that are undeveloped, like going from democracy to autocracy is generally thought of as a as a step backwards and not a step forwards. When it comes to like civil rights and economic metrics and, and every every possible measure of well-being. Yes. Yes. So I think that's really important. With Brexit, one of the things that I always think about is, my husband always says this, they sanctioned themselves. And when I think about like America and and part of the, you know, there are are certainly a, a group of people in this country who believe in secession, right? Who believe that it's too big and we don't have enough in common with the people you know, the white supremacists in Iowa, right? The the groups that are trying to separate themselves. Can you explain to us just quickly, quickly, why it's so that that is so bad for the economy? I think it matters more for democracy than for the I mean, I, I think I would prioritize the, the consequences for the republic as opposed to the economy. Look, we are an integrated, uh, an economically integrated nation. Uh, we have a lot of institutions and infrastructure that are dependent on the free flow of commerce among the states. And it's in our constitution. And so certainly that would be very unhelpful, depending on who's seceding. If we're talking about lower income states seceding that red states that are disproportionately subsidized by the tax revenue of blue states, 
you know, I'm thinking about a, a lot of like lower income per capita states like in the South that rely on a lot of tax revenue and, and federal borrowing to keep money flowing into the state, whether it's through Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid or anything else. Yeah, certainly worse for them probably than for a high GDP per capita a state like New York. But again, I would emphasize the consequences for the United States as, as an idea and as a democracy ahead of the consequences for the economy, which would be poor as well. Catherine Rampell, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles 
ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Did you know Rick Wilson and I are bringing together some friends for a general election kickoff party at City Winery in New York on March 6th? We're going to be chatting right after Super Tuesday about what's going on, and it is going to probably be the one fun night for the next 80 days. If you're in the New York area, please come by and join us. You can go to City Winery's website and grab a ticket. Debbie Stabenow is the senior senator from Michigan. Welcome to Fast Politics, Senator Stabenow. Well, it's great to be with you, Molly. I I appreciate all of your efforts, and we are certainly in a rough and tumble time, that is for sure. Yes, I'm really excited to have you on for a number of reasons, but also you are leaving the Senate. I am. You know, it's funny, but I actually got involved in politics and, and public service a long time ago. I was a grad student and took on Republicans at a county commission trying to close a local nursing home. I was very engaged in healthcare and ended up winning. And turned out I lived in the district of the guy trying to close the nursing home. And one thing led to another. People urged me to run. I was really mad at him. I didn't know anything about politics, but I was really mad. And I ran and he called me that young broad and the young broad beat him. And so that actually started me saying, hey, I think I can actually do something on a bigger picture in terms of making things better by being involved in politics. So county commission, state legislature, U.S. House four years, and then ran in 2000 for U.S. Senate. I didn't know when I ran in 2000 that a woman had never beat an incumbent before, but (laughs) I did win. And it's been a wonderful journey and tough, but, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, if you really want to make change happen, you got to have a lot of patience, tenacity, stubbornness, and right values, but you can make change happen. And that's why I've done it. And so end of the year, it's done for me. I think that there is a point where you need to pass the torch. I always said to folks, you know, I was the first this, the first that, the first woman chairing the state house of representatives, the first woman from Michigan from the Senate. Doesn't count unless there's a second and a third and a fourth. And I think it's in my time to, to pass the torch. You know, it's interesting because it's like you've done 24 years. I have a very warm feeling in my heart for Michigan because we have sort of the best of young Democratic women in legislature and then the best of older Democratic women in legislature. And it sounds like that was very intentional. No, very much so. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, I went into the state house. When I went to the state house, there were eight women in the house, none in the Senate non-statewide. And they had this committee called the Constitutional Revisions and Women's Rights Committee, and they wanted to put everybody on that committee. And I refused. And I'd been chairing a board of commissioners. I built a jail. I judged a lake. I I said, I'm not going to serve on that committee. But that kind of was where we were. And now, not only myself having served for 24 years in the Senate, but we have a great woman governor, attorney general, secretary of state, And we have the first 
state Senate majority leader, Winnie Brinks. We also, by the way, have a great Speaker of the House who's the first African-American, first African-American lieutenant governor. I mean, we have been profoundly changing Michigan, and I have been laser focused on that, on organizing Michigan, on doing the, the work over and over again to get us where we are. So that segues really into what I was going to ask. It's like a state filled with contradictions, right? You have this incredibly amazing team of women running the state, and then you have the Michigan militia. <laughs> like, I mean, it's very weird. So talk to me about how, I mean, I think there's a lot of Democratic anxiety about Michigan because of the war in Gaza. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Democrats can come back from that politically. There is understandable concern on all sides. And as someone who has been honored to represent the Arab American community and the Jewish community, in fact, we have over 275 different nationalities in Michigan, which make us stronger. It's really hard. You know, people are losing family members and it's whether it's a Palestinian baby or a Jewish baby or families. It's so, so, so hard. All I can say is that we have got to listen and respect and work as hard as possible to be able to bring the hostages home and to be able to stop the violence on innocent people. And I know that is what President Biden and his team are doing, by the way. It's just not always visible because so much of what they are doing is behind the scenes to push, although it's becoming more visible. Yeah, the temporary ceasefire. Yeah, Netanyahu, who should, you know, in my mind, should be gone. And Hamas and Netanyahu both should be gone. And we should be focusing on, on hope and opportunity, you know, and safety for the future. So it's hard. And I think you can't push people. You have to listen. They have to have time. And so that's what's happening and will continue to happen as we move forward. And uh, so it's all I can tell you is that, you know, on the other side, with I remember when Trump came in and proposed a ban and we were all standing at the airport protesting. And so in the end, it's going to be a really stark choice about our future for the country. And it's it's very real. It's very serious. Yeah, I think that there is time to meet legislators. I mean, Rashida Tlaib represents her constituents. Sure. And I feel like there is time for Democrats to be able to make, I mean, obviously you can never make right civilian death on this scale, nor can you make right any of it. But but I think there's time to reach out. There, do you feel there's a concerted effort towards that? I do. I think there is a concerted effort now. I think given the the immediacy of everything that was happening, it could have happened faster, for sure. But I do think that's happening and and has to happen. And people have got to listen and respect each other's pain and anger. And that's how we move through it. So Michigan is a really interesting state. Besides what's going on there, there are just a lot of different, you have really rural, you have cities you have. What is the outreach to Black voters look like in Michigan? And do you feel like that's landing? Well, we always have to work hard and we have to work early. And let me go back and just wind the clock back for a second, because it relates to what we're building on right now. After Trump was elected in 16, I felt I could either jump off the highest building, which was a real thought, <laughs> Or go in and reorganize the party. And I chose to do that. And we started with 
organizing the fact that Trump was trying to take away the Affordable Care Act, take away health care. First big rally in the country was done in Michigan with Bernie and Chuck Schumer. And, I mean, a whole bunch of people. And we started building, building. And then in 18, I was up for re-election. Governor Whitmer was on the ballot, all of our great people. And we doubled down. And the first doors we hit knocking on doors were in Detroit. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence and I led this effort because everyone would say, you don't come talk to us till October. Nobody's paying attention. So we said, okay, a June one, door one in Detroit and started a concerted effort there that resulted in we took back the state. And then I kept my campaign manager, took him over to, to the party to keep it going. I did, I talked to Reed at the time, who, you know, did year-round organizing at the party. And, okay, Harry, how'd you do that? But my point in saying is we, at 2020, biggest, you know, voter turnout for a presidential. Then we kept it going. 2022, biggest voter turnout for a non-presidential. Now we have to keep that going. And so it's complicated. There's so many different messages people are getting coming out of COVID. People are feeling so many different kinds of things that it's hard. People on the, you know, one hand say, I want to know what the president has done for the black community. And then you talk about the fact that it's the lowest black unemployment ever, more African-American small businesses led by black women, by the way, which is really and we can go on and on about it. And then folks say, no, that, you know, no, that's not enough. And I don't say that the number's not enough. It's like we need to do different things, more things. Talk about Trump. Some people say we should lean in more on Trump. Other people say more on the president. Right. Everybody has a suggestion. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's all the above. So there's just, you know, the presidential primary is coming up and African-American communities, absolutely critical always has been, and there's outreach going on, and that's just going to have to continue all the way through the election in the fall. I really want to go back to what you were talking about with talking to Harry Reid about organizing, because that really is, you know, we see this again and again, Democrats win when they organize, right, and they lose. I mean, a great example is this special that just happened, New York 3. That was a seat that was a Democratic seat. Everybody kind of forgot about it in 2022. And we had a sort of governor who wasn't as popular as other Democratic governors have been. And so it ended up being that just people didn't get out there. And we ended up with George Santos in Congress. So I think what you're talking about is great, this idea of focusing on, it seems like that is a really, like something that you sort of started and that Whitmer has, and that those three ladies have sort of kept going. Do you feel like that's true? And is there voter registration that's continuing? Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, I set up what we call the one campaign for Michigan. And even before, you know, our primaries are in August. So even before the governor was elected or the attorney general, secretary of state, all our, our great people, we were on the ground setting up things so that when they won the primary, the offices were open, things were happening, and, and that they could just go and our wonderful candidates could win. But what is additionally important is that we kept it going. As I said, my campaign manager from 2018 went over to run the party in 1920. And frankly, when COVID came, as we all remember, uh, and the Michigan primary was in March, we changed on a dime to all virtual and kept it going. And, it, and we used the tools we had. We had passed 
new reforms, contrary to what's happened in other states, we actually have more voting. We ha- You can sign up permanently to be on the absentee ballot list now. So in 19 and, tw- and 20, actually it was in 19, we knocked on 85,000 doors to sign people up to be on the permanent absentee ballot voter list. So we we have been, you know, using the tools. Now, this year, I mean, in the last election, we added nine days of early voting. That started Saturday. First day, 6,500 showed up. Next day, it was another, like, 4,000. We've had over 600,000 people vote absentee so far for the February 27th election. But it's about building and using the tools, using the issues. Choice is obviously huge for us. I mean, we put on the ballot and passed a change in our Michigan Constitution in 2022. People got signatures. They worked hard. We got that passed. And now we know that if Trump is reelected in Republican Congress and they pass a national abortion ban, that all goes away. Nothing that we put in the Constitution matters. And people are suddenly going, oh, my gosh, you mean we have to do this again? <laughs> I say, yes, we have to do this again. So let's talk for a minute about abortion. I mean, the fact that they took this federal right away from us is just infuriating. I think a lot of women continue to be furious about it. When you talk to voters, I mean, do they understand that a second Trump term will mean a federal abortion ban? They do, although it's something that people are just beginning to really understand. I think for all of us, we work so hard. And in 2022, I mean, 2022, it was the number one reason that young people came out to vote. I think the last voter, if you're in line at 8 p.m., you know, you can vote on election night. And I think the last voter was like 1 1 a.m. in the morning, Michigan and Michigan State. And we won that. We put it in the Constitution. And then we elected for the first time in 40 years, not only a Democratic governor, but Democratic state house and state senate, the trifecta for the first time in 40 years, they went in and repealed all these other laws that related anti-choice laws and so on. And so we think in Michigan, people have felt like, hey, we're good. You know, we're good. And there's 22 states that have done, you know, some form of what we did in Michigan. And so now we are saying to folks and People know, but I don't think everybody knows yet. So this is going to be a major focus for us going forward, that it doesn't matter what states have done. The federal ban will take away all of that. So between now and the election, believe me, people are going to know. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the reporting in The New York Times this weekend about the architect of SB8, the Texas ban, which did functionally overturn Roe with him fantasizing about using the Comstock Act to make it so that you can't send the pill in the mail was pretty terrifying. Well, I mean, for Pristone, you know, the Supreme Court has a case before them that they'll have to be deciding, you know, before they leave in June and essentially, you know, the the majority of early abortions in the first several weeks are done through uh, medical, you know, through mefepristone, through medicine. And so that becomes another way to have a ban. They're not going to give up 
they are not going to give up. That's why we got to take back the U.S. House. We got to hold the Senate. We, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have got to get reelected. Donald Trump, should, you know, at some point will be going to prison, I predict. And then we move on. <laughs> so that's the way we protect this. In some ways, we've come so far as women and just generally as a more progressive society. And in some ways, we're just right back there with Roe. I mean, it must be really just a sort of tough thing to sort of make sense of. Oh, yeah. I mean, it totally is. I mean, I was in college when Roe became law, and it was like, oh, my God. I mean, and to see this, you know, we make step forward, and then the opposition pushes back. And that's always been the case, always been the case. And that's what's happening now. For every positive reaction your action, there is a reaction. And a wonderful woman, Dr. Carol Anderson, has done several books, one called White Rage, where she talked about every positive step forward on race, there was a reaction. You know, I mean, and we we elect President Barack Obama, and then the reaction is Donald Trump. It's back and forth and back and forth. And the key is that we keep moving forward, even when it is Card And we're probably being tested now more than certainly any time in our lifetimes. There are other moments in history. But for us, this is it. We cannot give up. We cannot try to ignore this and hope that it's going to go away. And so we've just got to do what needs to be done. Lock in leaders that are going to you know, stand up for our freedoms, including uh, reproductive freedom, and then just keep moving. Yeah, I'm struck by where we are in technology right now is that technology has not respected local news and has really kind of crushed it. Do you think there's a chance that Congress, if there is a Democratic Congress, Senate, that there is any way that electeds will sort of take a step back and sort of regulate social media in any way? Or you think that's never happening? Well, yeah, I think that will happen. If we have a Democratic majority, there has to be guardrails, parameters. We've seen so much change. And honestly, it, you go back to Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in the House, and I think it was 1996 when they did away with the fairness doctrine. Remember, if you ask somebody, you got equal time, and that went away. And the guardrails around how much media one company or person could own went away. And ever since then, it's got worse and worse and worse. And then you add on top of that social media and the explosion on all of this. And we all know that, you know, they create algorithms. They want to keep you on by keeping you mad and so on. So this, we have to, we have to have accountability uh, around this. I think more than anything else, this has created the explosion of people's anger and hate and distrust of one another and so on. So we have to get our arms around this. Thank you so much, Senator. My pleasure. Congressman Colin Allred represents Texas's 32nd district and is a candidate for the United States Senate. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Colin. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Molly. I really appreciate it. Well, you're back on a very special anniversary. Do you want to talk about the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of a very special day? Well, we're three years. Three years, sorry. You can tell I'm laser-focused on what matters. The three-year anniversary of the day that Ted Cruz went to Mexico. It's a remarkable anniversary because still every Texan I come across knows exactly where they were and what they experienced during this statewide freeze. 
Uh, it's something that they could just seared into our minds. And this is you know, the moment that you know, Ted Cruz decided it was a good time to go on vacation to Cancun. And since then, he has just joked about it. And you know, he just joked about it the other day, saying when we had a freeze at Texas, if it gets too cold, you can join me uh, in Cancun. There's nothing funny at all about this. And I said on TV during the crisis that I was shocked at how arrogant and callous he was behaving. Our governor was going on TV blaming renewable energy when that wasn't the cause of what happened. I couldn't believe just how arrogant uh, the folks who were supposed to be responsible for trying to help Texans get out of this were behaving. When hundreds of Texans died, millions more didn't have power. Thousands more were you know, forced from their homes or had enormous damage to their homes from pipes bursting, causing all kinds of damage. It really is a remarkable thing. And I think it's an example of what happens when you have elected officials in place like Ted Cruz who don't really care about the folks they represent. Texas is a really interesting state because your power grid is not on the national grid because of deregulation, right? Explain to our listeners exactly why Texas, an enormous state that is bigger than many countries, has these energy problems. And then also, I would hope you might talk about how Texas this summer, at least, was saved by renewable. It's a paradox that we are the energy capital of the country, and I think in some ways of the world. And we've been having enormous issues keeping the lights on. And that's because of, as you mentioned, we are not a part of the national grid network. There are parts of Texas, like El Paso, that do get some of the national grid, but most of the state uh, is not on the national grid. And so if we have something... And that was a decision made by Republicans, right? Yeah. And the, uh, the idea here was that they didn't want to have to comply with the regulations that would be necessary to be a part of that. We had a, a similar kind of crisis that wasn't quite as bad a few years before this uh, statewide freeze, in which the federal regulators made some suggestions uh, about you know, what should be done to prevent this from happening, but they couldn't enforce it, of course, because we weren't part of the national grid. And those suggestions were ignored. And then what happened was actually quite a predictable outcome. If you have a, uh, you know, a kind of unique situation, but not one that was unforeseeable, uh, where you had almost the entire state under a freeze and you had multiple you know, gas lines frozen, multiple forms of thermal energy offline. It was a predictable outcome. And it's one of these things that also, I think, shows uh, when you have irresponsible leadership in place, what can happen? Because we were on notice that this is something that we could uh, have happen in our state. And as you said, this summer, actually every summer, we're going to set a record for you know kilowatt power needed. Every summer for us is going up in terms of hotter summers, but also we have more folks. <laughs> so we're rapidly growing state. So every summer we're, we are setting a record in terms of how much energy we need. And the only reason that we kept the lights on this summer was because of dramatic and really uh, substantive supplies from wind and solar in some cases. We are the number one wind energy state in the country. We're number two in solar. Our energy mix is actually quite diversified. And that has been not a result of our state politicians. That's actually been a result of those renewable sources being so competitive and so cheap that they were able to play a role in keeping the lights on. Yeah. Basically, Republicans didn't want regulation, so they left the federal power grid. They then found, because of global warming, because of the lack of regulation, 
the temperatures were so high or so low that, you know, you wouldn't have the, the gas or the energy to power your your grid that was not attached to the federal grid. And then now that renewables are so cheap, Republicans are sort of unable to stop that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is that a lot of our energy companies have already seen the benefits of renewable energy can provide, and they've moved in this direction on their own. The market has moved in that direction. And you know, I think some smart investments at the federal level, uh, like the Inflation Redu- Reduction Act, which you know, for folks who don't know what that bill is, it's really just the biggest green energy bill in American history, have, I think, added to that just in uh, in recent months. Uh, but this is because these sources of power are really good, and they are an important part of our mix. And so I have always advocated for an all-the-above approach in Texas. We're, we're an energy state. We're always going to be an energy state. Our energy mix is changing, but we are adding jobs in the energy sector by having renewable as part of our mix, not taking jobs away. And that's an important distinction because I think we have a lot of folks here who work in energy, and this is a, a growing part of our economy. Right. It's important because it shows that ultimately renewables are cheap enough, so they will hopefully save us if Republicans can somehow try to stop them. So talk to me about what Texas looks like right now. From those of us on the outside, for Democrats, certainly Texas has been a heartbreak. Tell us why it's not going to be a heartbreak this time. Well, listen, for us, this is about the future of this election that's coming up. And it's also about a senator who hasn't been doing the job that any senator, I think, could be expected to do, which is to try and pass legislation to help his constituents, to be concerned about the lives of his constituents, to actually you know care. And that's what makes this, I think, a different election, is that you know Ted Cruz is somebody who, as we just talked about, does abandon us when 30 million Texans are freezing in the dark, but also who you know votes against every piece of legislation that would help our state, whether it's the Chips and Science Act that you know, John Cornyn helped pass and, and Cruz voted against, or just recently this effort to try and help secure the border and have some reforms to uh, the asylum system. And Ted Cruz opposed it not because of the the policy, but because of the politics. You know, he wanted to run the problem. And so that's made him be in this situation where he is uh, the most vulnerable Republican senator in the country, but also where most Texans are just ready to move on from him. I have a very different story, one that is rooted in being a fourth-generation Texan, you know, being raised in Dallas by a single mom, you know, playing at Baylor, being captain of the football team there, making it to the NFL, going into voting rights and serving in the Obama administration and serving in Congress in a way that has shown that it's possible to actually bring folks together. And I'm proud that I've been you know, the most bipartisan member of the Texas delegation while also being one of the leading forces for democracy and civil rights, you know, I think, in the Congress. And so this election is one that's going to be incredibly important for the future of Texas. Uh, we are experiencing what a total ban on abortion or near total ban on abortion looks like. And the only way that we can resolve this is at the federal level, because our state is not going to do it. Our state courts are not going to do it. Our state legislature is not going to do it. The only way for us to restore these rights to Texans, Texas women, to Texas families, to restore access to abortion and just medical care will be at the federal level by codifying Roe v. Wade. And that's something that I voted to do in the House, but we haven't been able to get through the Senate. When I'm in the Senate, we will. Texas would actually be Democrats Really, they're closest to pick up opportunity. You know, I think so much about like in previous cycles, I remember having a candidate for Senate on this podcast and everyone said I was crazy because the polling showed him about eight points behind in the state of Wisconsin. He ended up losing by like half a point. So I'm hoping you can like just talk to us about why Texas is bluer than we think. I don't see us in terms of red or blue. I do see us in terms of that we're a state that hasn't had enough folks voting. And we've been a non-voting state. That's been our biggest issue. 
And it's in the millions, the numbers that we're talking about here. We had 9.5 million registered voters who didn't vote in the last election. So the numbers are staggering. Now, we are a big state, so those numbers can be big. And our task in every election has to be to chip away at that and try to get more of our fellow Texans involved, both for fairer elections, but also just for our democracy. I mean, you just can't really have a representative democracy when that many folks are not involved in it. But the other part of it is, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who are looking around and saying, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm a Republican, but I'm not that kind of Republican. In fact, I had an event last night. Several folks came up to me and said, you know, I've never supported a Democrat before. This is the first time I've done it. I just, I cannot support Ted Cruz and, and where things are going. This is a very real phenomenon. And this is ha- part of how, you know, I got elected to Congress by a lot of folks who were big supporters of George W. Bush and felt like the party had changed beneath them and they no longer recognized it. And I, you know, and I certainly want to run a campaign and I certainly have, have tried to serve in Congress in a way that can be inclusive enough for folks like that to feel like they can uh, also be a part of our movement. If you accept election results, if you believe that we should stand up to Vladimir Putin and not try to let him take over countries and kill political dissidents, if you believe that we shouldn't try to undermine all of our fundamental institutions in this country, whether it's our court systems or in the way that we process and count uh, the votes after an election, then you're part of my coalition and I want your vote. And there are a lot of folks out there who are like that. And a lot of folks out there who look at Ted Cruz and say, you know, you really should be trying to actually get something done at some point. And that's why we're in the situation where we're in a very close race right now. It's going to finish as a very close race. Uh, and I need folks' help. I need them to get involved. Go to ColinAlred.com, help us out, and make sure that who we are actually as Texans is represented on November 5th. It does seem to me like Ted Cruz has gone really full MAGA. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think it's it's surprising because of how personal the attacks were on him by Donald Trump. Apparently, there's no level of debasement that's, you know, low enough. You know, I mean, I know how I would respond if somebody, you know, talked about my family that way. And it certainly wouldn't be to try to overthrow an election for them just a couple of years later. But that that's the choice that's been made, obviously. To me, the real issue, though, more so than whether or not he's got a full MAGA, is that he is completely incapable I think of being a functioning United States senator for us. You know, he is not serious about the work. I come across so many people who there's an issue, they know they can contact me and they're in my congressional district or they can contact John Cornyn. They know they can't contact Ted Cruz because he's not going to do anything for them. So that's on the constituent services side, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but also it's big businesses. I mean, it's not just, you know, folks who need help with, you know, their uh, their tax returns. I mean, this is across the board. It's a it's a it's an attitude and an arrogance that I think uh, leads folks to feel like, you know, we really don't have you know, two senators right now. And, you know, we see, we have a guy who's podcasting three times a week, which Molly, you know how much time that takes. <laughs> you know? um, <laughs> he is but a humble podcast. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you could talk about Ted Cruz's. He found a Biden whistleblower and the whistleblower turned out to actually be lying. And now that whistleblower has been indicted. I haven't seen a lot of or any Mia Copa from Ted Cruz. Can you talk about that? It's just been <laughs> remarkable. Um, yeah, there's the kind of the, again, the arrogance of, you know, well, if that didn't uh, work, then we'll just ignore it. This is what he's interested in. The culture wars, the fake political fights, not actually doing anything substantive for Texans. And when you grow up like I did in Dallas and you're raised by a single mom and you go to our public schools like I did and you rely on your community, I think you get a much more kind of grounded perspective of how important it is that, you know, these kind of ladders of opportunity be in place for folks. And that's why, you know, my, my bipartisanship isn't a function of 
that I'm you know, trying to just have like a, a, a stat. It's that I'm trying to get something done, anything through a Congress that's incredibly difficult to get anything passed because I know there are folks out there who are working two jobs or three jobs uh, and they're, they're hoping their elected official is working as hard as they are. And Ted Cruz isn't. Right. They really wanted to impeach President Biden really because they thought it would help Trump, which is really not high crimes and misdemeanors. I mean, that's not how any of this is supposed to work. I mean, just the perversion of our democratic norms, that's just so insane. Yeah, well, we just had the, um, I guess it's like the, you know, the Seinfeld impeachment of Mayorkas, you know, because it's, it's about nothing, right? I have to say, just in my, I'm now in my sixth year in Congress, the stunts have taken over. Like the tail is fully wagging the dog. To be honest, we have to have a, a correction here in this election where we send a message as Texans, certainly as Americans, that we need serious people in public office, that we can't just have all these clownish stuff going on. I don't want to go too much into it because I'm, I'm part of the Foreign Affairs Committee and I'm briefed on these things. But, you know, the Russians are doing very real things. Chinese are doing very real things. We have a rash of coups in Africa. We are seeing democracy on the run in some ways around the world. Everybody is looking to the United States to be that central point that can you know, stand strong in a storm and say, we're going to make it through this and we're not going to fall into you know, some kind of global conflict again or some kind of era of human rights being taken away instead of expanded for the first time you know, in you know, 50 or 60 years. And this is a time that the United States has to be there. And we're, we are failing in that because of our political dysfunction, because of these extremists who just want to have something they can tweet out instead of something they want to actually pass you know, legislatively. And it wasn't always this way. I mean, I'm friends with a number of my Republican colleagues who are no longer in Congress because they've been driven out. And it just wasn't that long ago that we had a fairly you know, substantive Republican Congress that if, even if I disagreed with what they were trying to do, that they actually had something they wanted to do. And folks like Ted Cruz are responsible for this. They put us into this ridiculous era. And if it'd be such a message for us and such a self-correction for us uh, to be able to reverse that here. Really true. I think like it would be amazing if you could just sort of give us like what do people need from you? I mean, is it door knocking? Is it, I mean, if you were able to flip the seat, I think it would mean so much, not just for like Texas, but also just, it would mean a real rejection of MAGA and burn it down principles. Yeah. Well, I always say this is going to be about Texans talking to Texans and neighbors talking to neighbors. So this is going to be about us here in Texas, but we could use, you know, a lot of help in terms of making sure that our fellow Texans can be engaged in this election. And to me, that comes down to there's no easy way to help a voter or to turn a maybe voter into a voter. It's just hard work. It's just, you know, 10, 12, 14 interactions with that individual. And I've done it as a voting rights lawyer before I ever came to Congress. And I've you know done it now, of course, as a candidate, you know, running in districts where we needed to get more folks out to vote in order to win. And so it's incredibly labor intensive, <laughs> you know, it's also something that does take resources. So I'm asking folks if they can to get involved with us, text Texas to 90678. Find out how you can get involved, whether that's phone banking or door knocking or contributing or telling your friends in Texas how they can be involved. This can be an effort that can be such a positive for Texas and for our country. You know, when I ran in 2018, I ran against a 22-year incumbent Republican who had been unopposed in the previous election. Nobody thought he could be beaten. He was the chairman of the Rules Committee. He was like the furniture. We couldn't get rid of him. And we beat them by nearly seven points by mobilizing new voters who had never been involved and by reaching across out and, and getting 
independents and, and you know, principled Republicans uh, to come over to our side. And we can do that here, but we need y'all's help. Yeah. Thank you, Colin. Okay. Thank you so much, Molly. I appreciate you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. You know, Molly John Fest, many times we are gaslit when we say things are going to get bad. But the second Trump term really looks like it would be The Handmaid's Tale, just like everyone was saying. Yeah, incredible stuff here out of Politico. This is what we talk about when we talk about the stakes as opposed to the odds, right? Like instead of a million Nate Silver pieces about the odds of a Biden reelect, what we really need are the stakes of a Trump reelect. And here we go. Among some of the top proposals for a second Trump admin, end surrogacy. Okay, they're going to end having a surrogate to carry your child, which has provided children for all of these child couples and no-fault divorce, which was, by the way, signed into law by communist, Marxist, liberal Ronald Reagan in the state <laughs> of California. It has been a huge boon for women's empowerment and it has cut the numbers for domestic violence way down. So you bring that back, you're going to see more women murdered by their romantic partners. Invoke the Insurrection Act to stop protests. We, he's already talked about it. We know that's coming. End sex ed in school. No better way to get teachers pregnancy going then to end sex ed and stop policies that subsidize single motherhood. Spoiler, there is no subsidizing single motherhood in this country. And with the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children and citing the Bible in an opinion, I think we can see here they're not joking about this. Yeah. So uh, Christofascism, here they come. And that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. 
People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.